Hello, my name is Rory O'Connor and I am President of the International Association for Suicide Prevention. I'm delighted to welcome you to our new podcast series called Reach In, Reach Out. We're hoping to encourage safe conversations around suicide and suicide prevention, and we aim to bring together the different aspects of the work that we do, providing a global perspective, but crucially also sharing stories of hope. A fundamental part of our work is engaging with people with lived and living experience of suicide, either through their own personal experiences of suicidality or through loss and grief. This will be a central strand running through the entire podcast series. Given the sensitive nature of the subject matter, it is vital that we all prioritize our well-being. So please practice self-care. I hope that you find the podcast of interest and we really look forward to hearing what you have to think. Thank you. Welcome to our latest podcast, our latest YASP Reach In, Reach Out podcast. And today I'm delighted that we have two guests. We've got Benny Prawira Shaw uh, from Indonesia. And Benny is a, is a researcher with lived experience. And we've also joined by Christina Mosgraber. And Christina is from another part of the world. Christina is based in the United States at Safe Side Prevention. And both Christina and Benny will talk to us about sort of the journeys they've been on, but crucially, the fantastic work that they've been both doing in their countries, which have had international reach in terms of really how we can best utilise safe lived experience in suicide prevention. So maybe if I can kick off with Benny in the first instance. So Benny, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me here. It's so Benny, can you tell us a bit about about the work you've been doing in Indonesia over recent years? Yeah, so basically I'm a researcher with life experience of suicide ideation. I previously graduated with social health psychology master degree in Indonesia, and I founded a youth-based non-profit suicide prevention organization in, in called as Into the Light Indonesia in 2013, back then, and I also had my previous life experience of suicide ideation, which actually ironically became more intense after my suicide profession work in Indonesia. Mm-hmm. So, and then rather than stopping my steps in mental health movement uh, and suicide profession movement, this experience actually motivated me to go deeper into life experience involvement advocacy. So now I joined with the Welcome Trust's mental health life experience team as life experience advisor. The Global Mental Health Peer Network and had several experiences as public patient involvement in a research project, international research project with University of Manchester and University of Indonesia, as well as uh, part of the Live Experience Advisor Panel with the University of British Columbia for their research on digital mental health equity. Fantastic. Now, so that's a lot going on. I'm just going to stop you here for a second, Benny, and go through a few of those things. So you, you set up Into the Light in Indonesia. So yes. tell us, how did, you go, how did that happen? How did you go about doing that? And, and, yeah. what's, the, and what's the aim of Into the Light? It was back then in 2012. Yeah, in 2012 that I found uh, there are so many news of suicide and it was covered in a very stigmatizing and glorifying ways. And I also encountered some peers who had suicidal talk at the time. But I do not know how to handle the situation, how to navigate it. 
I was also a psychology student and people just seek help to me while I was being so clueless. Like I was like, okay, there's something we need to do about this. We need more informations, educations everywhere, but less stigmatizing news. So yeah, that's how I started the a seminar at first. And then the committee of the seminars uh, decided that we do need more uh, continuous effort on this because when we established the committee and we announced the seminar, at the time, there were people who reached out to us. I was like, oh my God, we are not hotlines. We are not hotlines and we, we are not informed yet at that time. So yeah, uh, certainly there there is a need there was a need of uh, suicide prevention awareness evolve, awareness raising evolve, and yeah, that's how I started. Okay, no, fantastic, and and so you've also not only doing the work in Indonesia, mm-hmm. but you mentioned there, so you're doing the work with the Wellcome Trust in the United Kingdom, mm-hmm. and also with the University of Manchester, yeah, and University of British Columbia in Canada. Mm-hmm. So, so tell us a bit about what you are you advising. On, the, on projects or what, what's your role or what are you doing there? Yeah, so back then in 2020, in 2020, I start to realize that there's this need of life experience involvement in research. I myself had my own experiences and I think rather than seeing this as, you know, as a pitfall at that time as a suicide professional, okay, how can you, uh, how can you be suicidal and stuff like that? Rather than seeing the it that way, then I, I want to see this as a strength, uh, something to contribute as well. So yeah, yeah I applied for the Welcome Trust, and then there's also there was also an opportunity, an international collaboration in Indonesia, and somebody in the management offered me the opportunity because my work in it to the light. And then uh, for the University of British Columbia, I just started I just started the work uh, during this year. Okay, fantastic. No, well, it's good. I mean, really impressive work, and it's great to see the international reach of the work now. So, let me maybe just move on to Christina, and we'll come back to obviously what your own lived experience, Benny, and how that's specific examples, perhaps, of how that is informing the work that you do. But, Christina, could I ask you the same? Tell us a bit about your background and and really what brought you into the work that you're doing today. Yeah, thank you so much, Rory. And I really thank you guys for having me on here. I really appreciate it. So for me, it's really, you know, whenever whenever I get asked this, Rory, I always kind of, you know, scratch my head about where to start. And, you know, I think where I uh, where I start on this journey is that I have a story that is not uncommon. I am a person, I live with bipolar disorder that was not diagnosed until after my last attempt uh, eight years ago. And, you know, when I say I have a story that's not uncommon, it's that I struggled for a long time. I had these thoughts when I was a teenager. I, you know, stuffed them down. I didn't know how to ask for help. I didn't know where to ask for help. I didn't know. I thought this was all my fault. And through doing this work, I've learned that I'm not alone in this. And it's it's very common to have these thoughts. And and, and as difficult as that may be to to think about and to hear, it brings me a lot of a lot of hope and quite frankly, a lot of gratitude that I get to do this work. Because eight years ago, I almost did lose my life to suicide. And I'd had a very long career in events and PR and all this stuff. And everything looked good from the outside because I was very good at making things look good from the outside to, to hide everything that was that was happening on the inside. And I had no idea what my life was going to look like at twenty in 2015 when I, I started to rebuild. And I started volunteering and I realized 
I wanted to do work in the space because I wanted to take all that, you know, gosh, I didn't know any of this stuff and turn mm-hmm. it into things for others that they would then know, you know, that I could educate and I could help and get involved and advocate. And I started volunteering and, and getting a little stronger and learning and started volunteering with our local NAMI, which is the National Alliance on Mental Illness. It's a, a advocacy agency here in the States. And I started working with them and uh, teaching and, and learning and especially with kids and youth suicide prevention. Uh, so I got certified in some programming to deliver prevention efforts in schools with young ones. And then I uh, was on a advisory council in our uh, medical center here in Rochester, the University of Rochester Medical Center, which is where I met uh, Dr. Tony Pisani, who is the mm-hmm. founder of Safe Side Prevention. And uh, he was, you know, just really getting it off the ground and looking for lived experience, you know, partner. And we uh, we had lunch and five years ago, it was literally five years ago, right around now. And we say, you know, the rest is history and so proud to be a lived experience faculty with Safe Side Prevention, which is um, an international company delivering uh, video-based suicide prevention education to uh, clinicians and all different kinds of folks. One of the things I love the most about Safe Side is it's strength-based, it is recovery-based, and it's a roadmap of best practices mm-hmm. in suicide prevention. And, you know, when I when I met Tony and he said, we're sitting there and he says, do you want to see the, the framework? And I said, of course I do. And he showed it to me and I have no, you know, formal mental health training. I mean, Rory, you know, you meet Tony Pisani, right? And you're just like, yes. <laughs> but, you know, I have he's no a, very, he's a very persuasive oh. and engaging individual. He's, a great, <laughs> he's, he's just great, the best. He's great. Yeah. He's just the best. Oh, and uh, but what I loved, you know, when I when I saw the framework, not only you know did it make sense to me again, and I have no formal clinical training, mm-hmm. it made sense to me, but it also made me really reshape the way I thought about my recovery because I thought, man, if somebody had talked to me this mm-hmm. way, my path could have been differently or could have gone yeah. differently, you know. And um, and so I was just hooked, and I, I joke with him and I joke with people, but I said, you know, if if Tony didn't want me on his team, I was going to figure out a way to kind of professionally stalk him and figure out <laughs> figure out an end to be part of safe side because it's just uh such incredible work in suicide prevention so incredibly grateful for that our our team and our, our work has grown so much in these five years and my work with our local advocacy agency has grown so much i've learned and trained and and i'm the chief operating officer now so that's very cool continuing work with our local countywide suicide prevention coalition mm-hmm. we have a new team uh, that's part of my team for outreach to suicide loss survivors. So mm-hmm. it's called a loss team. It's a national model here in the States and we can go out and respond after a suicide. So we're doing a lot of uh, prevention, but we're also expanding our efforts in postvention as well um, because we know that, you know, the the support really never ends for folks and, and shouldn't end for folks. So, so well, yeah, that's just kind of a nutshell, Rory. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a, that's a great nutshell or a great, great nut, nut to crack open. And look, so just thinking back to the, because I'm really struck by what you said when you had that launch with Tony and and then obviously showed you the framework and and, and it resonated with you. And, and I suppose that really highlights, I think, in one very small example, why getting, having that lived experience lens is so, so important because too often in the past, I would argue that we've been so focused on developing the, what we what we think is the perfect intervention or the perfect way of helping people, but without, I mean, historically, without really thinking about what people at the, uh, who are in distress, who are suicidal, actually need. So, uh, so I'll come back to you how you because you, you've seen you've gone on this incredible journey, Christina, over the last 
five or what would you say seven years? Like was it two thousand fifteen? Yeah. That sort of yeah. recovery yeah. point right through for no, more recently. And just I'm going to go back to Benny in a second, but Christina, can you just for the, for our non United States listeners here, can you just say a bit about what NAMI is? I, I'm familiar with NAMI, but maybe some of our our international listeners aren't familiar with NAMI is. Can you just say what NAMI is and what NAMI does? Oh, sure, of course. So NAMI is an acronym for the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And uh, NAMI was actually founded a little over 40 years ago. Truly grassroots effort of, you know, they lovingly call themselves the NAMI Mommies here in the United States. Um, they call themselves what? Were they calling themselves what? The NAMI the Nami Mommies. <laughs> the Nami <Right>. Mommies. <laughs> because it truly was an effort, like, started around a kitchen table. You know, these they had, here in the States, many years ago, people would be institutionalized as mm-hmm. a child, and then they would be released when they were, you know, 18 or 21 years old without community supports. And so these moms were like, gosh, you know, what, what do we do? You know, and so started these, you know, just grassroots support groups where you'd get together and you know, somebody bring a crock pot and, or there'd be many crock pots and uh, they would just, you know, talk and try to support themselves. And so now it has grown into this incredible national organization uh, that provides support groups and evidence-based programming and education for not only family members now, but those who lived with mental health conditions and Mm. in, you know, our NAMI here in Rochester, New York, you know, we be, we're, we're very cognizant and very just intentional, I guess, about the fact that, mental health conditions and mental illness includes suicide prevention, suicidal thoughts, ideation, actions, and substance use disorder as well. Because here in the States, they've always been very siloed. And so that has been a a difficult thing, you know, here in the States and people getting treatment. So NAMI is very, very aware of that. And we work very hard to be sure people know it's all, it's all part of the picture when we're talking about mental health conditions. So uh, incredible. Yeah. Yeah, Incredible organization. I didn't, well, I mean, I, I knew about, I've known about the more recent work, but I didn't realize how it started. So that's been, uh, yeah. that's been a really, but that, that's another example of lived experience, really, even 40 years ago, leading the yes. way in, in terms of development yeah. and advocacy and services. So, Benny, go back to you. So, what, what, we, what Christina is talking about there is obviously the experience of, well, mental illness and how it was treated or, well, this and potentially historically the stigma and issues around mental health treatment and access to mental health. But in Indonesia, can you tell us a bit about the state of, of play, so to speak, in terms of stigma around suicide in Indonesia and really that broader social context? And maybe tell us then a bit about your own experience of having suicidal thoughts and how that how that and then you sort of your how that you've got into your role now of obviously doing the advocacy work. Yeah. For the suicide Stigma itself in Indonesia, I think it's still very much alive and prevalent everywhere because everything in Indonesia is actually very determined by religiosity. So, and then uh, here we have so many uh, conservative view on that, on suicide, even though we do not have any, any law that prohibits suicide, but the stigma is still there and very much alive. And it's also quite embedded into the structure that I, we can see the national health insurance wouldn't cover anyone who had suicide attempt or self-harm attempt. So, yeah. Just to be clear, did you say that the, the health insurance does or doesn't cover 
does not. Does not. Does not offer. Yeah. Mm. So let's like offer on that because yeah, the view is all. It's all about your your choice. As if it is your choice. As if it is, it is your sin. As if it is something that yeah, personal flow related to personal flow and. We know how inaccurate is this and how reductionist this is. So we try to educate people more on that. So how to explain how complex it is that it doesn't really matter. On It is not only a matter of fate. It's also mm-hmm. a matter of a lot of things happening from our very early age until our recent days. So yeah, that's the way we are, we are trying to educate people on that. Mm-hmm. So... In my own experiences, I'm lucky enough, even though I will say that it's also ironically enough, that I happen to have more intense suicide ideation during my suicide professional work. But on the other side, I know my resources already. Mm-hmm. I know my resources. I know my support system already. I know those people who don't judge me for that. So I'm lucky enough at those moments, I had this friend who can talk to me like, just accompany me and yeah, making sure that I'm quite safe than doing nothing at all, <laughs> doing nothing harmful to myself at all. So yeah, that's how uh, I think I got it ironically, but also luckily because at the same time, it becomes a quite challenging work in Indonesia. Yeah, yeah we are very heavily underfunded. And uh, the the whole there are a whole lot of cases, and there are very few research on this. So there are so many things to get done, but also at the same time we have to manage to take care of ourselves personally. Mm-hmm. So yeah, <laughs> yeah but, but, that's how it but is. On, you know, but that's such an important point, Benny. And, and if I understand correctly, you're saying that obviously when you experience the intensity. Of, or the elevation in suicidal thoughts whilst you're doing the suicide prevention work, you've got a friend who you can turn to for support and to yes. help keeping yourself safe. So that's an informal mechanism. Are there any, for people working in this sort of lived experience sort of sphere in Indonesia in this context of mental health, are there more formal supports or mechanisms in place or not? Uh yeah, unfortunately not. So yeah. we used to have this suicide crisis hotline back yeah. in twenty ten. Yeah, twenty ten. But then it was closed. People, uh, the government closed it. Yeah, because they said it was very. There, there were very few caller. I don't know how they socialize it in the first place because nobody really knows about the number but then they close it they decided to close it and then there are several ngos appearing after the rise of the mental health movement so after after 2013 there are there are so many there are so many communities appearing and they established themselves as ngos and then some of them give any kind of hotline services but even so, it is largely, you know how to say it, it's unsustainable because there yeah. is no funding and there are a lot of cases going. Yeah. So, yeah, it's quite hard to find it on. Even on clinical side, Tori, uh, on clinical side, we really have therapies with DBT, for example, right, for right. cases like BPD and any kind of other severe mental disorders as well. So, yeah. 
Well, I think one that highlights, Benny, I'm going to come back to Christina now, is so one of the issues and one of the things as an organisation, as the International Association for Suicide Prevention, one of the things we're keen to sort of understand and try to support is better support for, pe- for people with lived experience being involved in suicide prevention globally. And in Indonesia, then again, what you're su- suggesting, Benny, is there's relatively speaking limited, there's very limited support for people unless you've got informal mechanisms. Whereas I think, Christina, you're going to tell me it's a very different picture in the United States because I think my sort of sense of the field has been in recent years, the United States and Australia in particular, I, I really, I think have been really at the forefront of driving forward the sort of lived experience, embedding lived experience in suicide prevention. So maybe with your experiences, Christina, what, what would you say in terms of what structures, mechanisms or supports are in place for people with lived experience working in suicide prevention in the U.S.? So, you know, such such an important question, Rory. And, you know, here in, in the United States, we actually have just launched the 988 hotline that launched on 16th of July here. And that is a national number. It's been many years um, in the making. And it is for not only people who are experiencing uh, perhaps a suicidal crisis, you know, thoughts, actions, but also, again, mental health crises and substance use disorder issues. And so that is that's a huge step forward here in the United States. Just to clear, so for our international audiences, so the 988 is the new, it's meant to be the, the, well, the the crisis helpline was there previously, but it didn't have a three-digit number. So it's meant to be the the mental health equivalent of 911, isn't that correct? You got it. That's exactly a perfect way to say it, Rory, because there was, we've always had the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is an 800 number. And those, you know, 800 numbers are long uh, on a good day, right? So in a crisis, we want people to have a three-digit number to be able to call. So the and the, the NSPL is still here, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. They're all, everybody's part of it. And there are still crisis lines and all kinds of other wonderful local resources here in my area of New York State. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're very resource rich, which I'm I'm incredibly grateful for. And you know, we do have a lot of work to do. I think we're always going to have work to do in this field. But you know, there's there's a lot of great resources here, which I'm incredibly grateful for. And you know, just kind of thinking too, Rory, about supporting people with lived experience. Uh, one thing that is is so important to me is you know being sure to give myself the space to feel what I need to feel doing this work. Benny, I can completely empathize with you that doing this work is so difficult. It can make those feelings more intense. And Mm -hmm. so when I started doing this work, I was, I was so confused because I was like, but this is great work and I'm helping people. Why am I feeling this way? And I realized, wow, this is really intense work. (laughs) You know, so I really built in safeguards for myself and people that I mentor and that I work with and I help that are work, you know, kind of coming into this work, that's one of the first things that, if not the first thing, one of the very first things we talk about is that, you know, the goal of this work and the hope of this work is not, you know, it's not to re-traumatize ourselves. It's not to bring ourselves Mm -hmm. into, you know, into those dark places again. And the way that we can do that is by taking care of ourselves. So for example, you know, when I know if, uh, if we're going to be doing a safe side, you know, we're doing a, a workshop, whether it's a half day or a full day, or we're traveling, I always build in time for myself before, after, mm-hmm. around that, knowing I need that time, knowing that I'm going to need, you know, Benny, you talked about having that friend, knowing I'm going to need to reach out to whoever that might be just to, to be able to talk about it or to be able to just say, wow, today was a rough day. Yeah. But that's, you know, that's just so important because I think all of us, <laughs> I think those of us that are empaths and do the work that we do or in other caring fields, 
a lot of times uh, we can put ourselves last or we can, you know, in our in our need and want and and built in desire to help, which is so incredible. And I'm so grateful for sometimes we're at the very back of that line. And so I've, I've been working really hard to be sure I'm not, you know, I'm not at the back of that line. And, you know, I know uh, listeners, you know, you can't see us, but Benny, Rory, all of us were shaking our heads like, yes, you know, we really, uh, <laughs> exactly. we, care, we care so much, right? And we have to do, uh, we have to do what we can to take care of ourselves because we can't, you can't draw from an empty well, you know, so we've got to take care of ourselves, both lived experience and otherwise. So. No, absolutely. No, I, I mean, that's such an important point worth repeating again, that importance of, of self-care and, and I sort of, even though it's not te- technically grounded in research evidence, there's something about that sensitivity to other people's distress is obviously linked to our own sensitivity and our own, whatever, psychological skins being maybe thinner. And, and it's so important that self-care has to be number one. If you say you can't drink from an empty cup or you, you can't care for others or support others if we don't look after ourselves. So I point such an important point, Christina. But then maybe on that then, so in terms of on the tips and so would you like are there like two apart from this sort of obvious self the self-care one we've made are there any other tips you would give in terms of either both i'm thinking of organizations who've never used lived experience or maybe not tips but maybe because lots of so in the united states yes certainly there's lots of examples or in the uk of organizations now really using and calling upon lived experience in a really meaningful way. There's lots out there, organizations or individuals who don't know about the benefit of lived experience. So maybe are there two or three things you could say, and I'll come back to you then, Benny, as well, but maybe, Christina, stick with you for a second. Can you think of two or three things you would say to an organization which really doesn't understand the benefits of lived experience? Anything come to mind? And, Benny, you'd be thinking on this now as well, so you've got a head start, Benny. And Christina, sadly... (laughs) Well, Christy, I'm 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 trying to I'm trying to pad this out a bit to give you a bit of time. <laughs> no, this is great. No, it's great. Hey, listen, Rory. You know, this is uh, you know, I was on a live radio show earlier this week, and uh, one of the questions was lobbed my way, and I thought, oh, I need to take a breath on this one. So, <laughs> this is great. This, you're you're awesome. I guess you know that's an incredible question, Rory, because in my I always have to remind myself that I live in an incredibly inclusive space with SafeSide, with Tony, with our team, with my other work that I do, you know, NAMI and just in this community. And I always have to remind myself that not all spaces are as inclusive. And, mm-hmm. you know, what I would say there is, you know, I, I mean, there's so many things I could say. One of them, though, is we all have lived experience of something. We've all, you know, lived through different things. We all have unique experiences. And that's how we learn and grow. You know, if you think about just a, a conversation you have with other humans, they speak of their jobs, they speak of their family, they speak of, you know, struggles they've had. And we learn from them and we grow from them and we collect information. And so in suicide prevention, involving lived experience, especially not just involving as far as like a consultant or, you know, some insights here or there, but really truly meaningfully embedding lived experience in the work you do is that is just the same as other human experiences, it, but it's so sacred and it's so special because you know I certainly don't wish the things that I you know I've gone through and um, experienced in my life as far as suicide is concerned on anyone. However, it is such an experience that has has brought me to this point, and I feel so grateful to share with others. And there are so many people that have that experience, and it is it is very special and it's very sacred. 
and it's very vulnerable. And so, you know, I would say that people with lived experience to me are just as important as people with many letters after their name. They are because again, we all have a unique experience and insight to provide. You know, I'm not a clinician. I don't need to be or want to be. I am so grateful for clinicians. I think they're incredible. But I also think that I'm incredible. And I think that my peers and colleagues who work in lived experience are incredible because we have a story to tell and we have an insight to offer that a lot of people don't have. And that's okay. So Mm -hmm. I would say, you know, again, with lived experience, it has to be meaningful. It has to be thoughtful. It has to be embedded, not an afterthought. And that, you know, it is so sacred because I've had so many conversations, you know, Rory and Benny, where I'll say, well, you know, that person, they're not telling you the truth because they're feeling shame. And I, well, I never thought about that. I think they're just lying to me. Well, (laughs) they're lying because feeling shame. I've been there. Like literally, you know, I had a conversation earlier this week and this, this person is describing all my daughter's lying to me and she's manipulating me. And she's all these things. And she walked me through it. And I said, gosh, I said, when I was sick eight years ago, I said and did every single one of those things. And you know why? I was scared. I was scared. Yeah. I was full of shame. I was embarrassed. I was all these things. And so it was just, you know, it was the way that I, I responded. And so I was able to help this person, you know, kind of navigate through this and find new empathy for her daughter, which was yeah. very cool. And again, very special. So Listening to lived experience can really provide not only insights, information, and tools, but an increased level of empathy and, you know, empathy and, and you know, that shared vulnerability as well. So, Rory, I don't know if that was a very roundabout way to answer your oh, that's question. Oh, that's a good, that's, you know, that's a great answer. I'm very fun to kind of know you, but, but just my take from that is, it's in terms of that message to an organization is, we need to value all types of evidence and insights equally. And that lived experience insight is equally valuable to academic or clinical insights. So, Benny, the same same question to you, and maybe yours come from a different perspective from a different country, but what would you, organization or government or whoever might be, how would you sell, so to speak, or not sell wrong because it shouldn't be about selling, but how would you help convince somebody of the importance of lived experience? Okay, so for the context, actually in Indonesia, the term of lived experience itself is not really well known and the understanding is not really mainstream, even in the in the program itself. So one of the most striking thing for me, <laughs> for example, is when we talk about Yield Mental Health Seminar, for example. For Yield Mental Health Seminar, uh, you, they usually only use old age, senior or something academia representative and the panel, but they never really involved the young people with live experience in that panel. Mm-hmm. So they really give the space for young people with live experience. And then when it comes to this, not only panel, but also program development and sometimes also research, research involvement, it is really about, it's really about asking first to those who are already impacted, those with live experience about what they actually really need. So you always come from the assumption that this kind of theoretical framework will work and stuff like that. So I think it loses its relevance in some way. And the way I try to convince people is by using this using this live experience involvement is if you want your research and program to be more relevant, and to be more acceptable, because people here are really concerned about the practical value of everything. So, yeah, why don't you involve them from the very beginning? Why don't you ask them 
why don't you value their opinion in the same way you value your colleague with academic background? So it's quite easy for me to talk about that because I also have the degree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because I have also have the degree. I have also have the academic background for, but ah, uh, I have to realize that it is also part of my privilege. In other way, there are many people with life experience felt left behind, and, but they take the space on social media. Mm-hmm. So I can say that a uh, mental health movement in Indonesia is quite largely driven by me- people with lived experience who came out, tell their story, their lived experiences, and even build their own community in social media. Mm-hmm. So now everyone starts to talk about it. The integration to research and program and advocacy is still lacking, very lacking. Are you saying then there definitely has been progress like mm-hmm. social media has been a great example of mm-hmm. democratization or giving people the tools or the outlet to talking about their mental health. But from what you're saying, it seems though that still you're still having to make the case for the importance of, of involving people with lived experience or youth with lived experience from the beginning. So does that sound maybe it'd be, good, it'd be interesting to think about if YASP as an organization can do more in, such, in Indonesia and other countries to try and help sort of broker or, or that advocacy work where really to prioritize the importance of lived experience in all aspects of suicide prevention or the research the research process. Okay. So is that my is that my sort of summary sort of accurate? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. That's okay. you got it right. <laughs> okay, so a couple of questions and we'll sort of bring it into a, a, a sort of bring it to an end after a couple of questions. But so what I'm just curious about is, again, we've touched on this idea of the safe involvement of people with lived experience. And I think, that's, I think we're, we're all agreed on that. But are there anything, any pieces of advice that you can think of which will optimize? How, how can we optimize lived experience so that lived experience really gets through and and has the most, I mean, the, the, it's, well, the, making it most effective? So maybe again, if I, if I start, start with Christina again on that one. So what are the things, are there nuggets that you have learned over the last seven years? Do you think actually here are the key principles of best the best practice for lived experience? Mm-hmm. Again, Rory, just these questions are, are, are wonderful mm-hmm. and such a great way to start my Friday. You know, I think I'm going to, would, I would go back to something I, I think I was touching on earlier is that lived experience has to be embedded part of your mission it has to be it has to be you know treated and and recognized the same way that clinical and research expertise is and you know it's it's interesting because like i said earlier too i know we you know we all have lived experience right i know people yeah. who are clinicians who have lived experience of suicide you know so we all are very complex humans and wear many hats but you know nuggets i would definitely say number 1 it can't be an afterthought it it has to be again part of your you know just it's it's got to be part of your mission your values part of what your agency or company or you know our work is i would also say for for people who are especially adding lived experience or or considering adding lived experience recognizing, as we talked about earlier, how emotionally charged this work is for us. And to be sure that when you're creating these positions or you're creating these opportunities for folks who lived experience and embedding them into what you're doing, 
to also remember that emotional factor and to be sure, you know, one of our our, our core values at SafeSide is healthy team and being sure that, you know, we're checking in with each other, you know, checking in to be sure when we work with people, making sure that that they're okay, you know, and, and if if someone says they're not okay, then we have to support them. You know, we can't we we can't perpetuate in this field the continued, you know, stuffing it down, right? We need to, if somebody says, hey, I'm not okay, we need to say, okay, this is what we're gonna do or how we're gonna help you, not just, you know, go uh, go have a sleep on it, you know. So I would say those, I guess for me, are the two most important nuggets just mm-hmm. to be sure okay. that, you know, it's very meaningful and that we recognize the the need for safe spaces for it and to give people the emotional support and space that they need doing this work. Fantastic. Thanks, Christina. Same question, Belly. So what do you what do you think? Key nuggets which in your experience have made lived experience more most or more effective. Yeah, I actually really resonate with what Christina said about providing the emotional support because when we involve live experience, of course, there will be this kind of risk for having these kind of emotional factors and stuff. What I really want to add as well is about providing a fair compensation fair compensation for the live experience, just the way we pay our profession, other kind of professionals is also an expertise. And we need to value such expertise, right? Then on the other side, I also really want to emphasize the diversity of live experience panel itself, because when, especially when it is relevant to the research questions, yeah, when it comes to more, perhaps uh, research on general populations, then we will have when we have more diverse people in, with diverse identities and diverse experiences as well on related to suicide, then we will have more rich resources, rich insights from it. So I think that's how to best uh, implement it. Yeah, no, I think that's, I'm so pleased you raised the issue of compensation, Benny, because that is such a key issue. Because it, so again, in the, in the UK and I think in the US and in Australia, the three countries I know best, from the research component point of view, yeah, there's no clear protocols in place that this people with lived experience get the same remuneration for their time and expertise as other people, other people with other sorts of expertise. So, so important. But sadly, that is in many countries, that still isn't the case. And I think so in addition to yeah, the emotional support, the financial support, is absolutely key. Such such an important point, and I think the one of the I think one of the great growths in the if I think of the suicide prevention field, and I think of the context in Scotland where I live, we've got a lived experience panel who feed directly into Scottish government. So when we're when we're trying we're currently close to publishing our new suicide prevention action plan, which will happen in the autumn. But what we've got in Scotland, we've got an academic advisory group. And we've also got a, a lived experience panel. Now, I'm the co-chair of the academic advisory group. And we but the but what's great though is that the both the lived experience panel and the academic advisory panel have equal weight in terms of us trying to inform policymaking. But crucially, the lived experience panel and many of these individuals on that panel, this is an additional component that's not part of their core job. And so it's what's so important is that support. And I think we need to continue to advocate for that. This is not a free aside. This is something which is so valuable. And I think, Christine, in your role, you're in a paid position, as I understand it, and the way it works in terms of in other suicide prevention organizations, the lived experience is paid, remunerated. Is that correct? 
yeah, very fortunate with the organizations I work with, Rory, that they are, you know, appropriately paid and, and compensated. I do have to say, though, you know, here in the U.S., we have positions that are a lot of peer positions that people are working to bring lived experience to these spaces. Mm-hmm. But the wages definitely do need to be increased. And that, you know, that all comes down to funding. And so that's a big part of what we do is is fight for additional funding, you know, for these lived experience positions, because it, it's certainly, you know, we, we need to be compensated appropriately and fairly for the work that we're doing. So, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Change, well, thanks, change is happening, Rory. <laughs> yeah, no, change is happening, but sadly change remains slow. It's not as fast as we would like it to be. And it's so different right. in the different parts of the world, which is such a challenge. Okay, two last questions. One, and for both of you, of course, is so given your both your experiences, if somebody approached you about doing lived experience, so what would you advise them to do? So I'll start with, with Benny this time. And they wanted to get involved in lived experience in, in the context of suicide prevention. As a practical advice or ways of doing that? Yeah, especially in Indonesian context, yeah, I've, since we do not really have very formal support, please make a clear about how we can seek help whenever needed, where we can do some check-ins and stuff like that for emotional support. And then, yeah, please also make sure about the compensation, at least make it quite fair or decent enough for some people who live experience and then always make sure that there is this diverse background panels with the whole uh, diverse identities represented in the live experience whenever it is possible and relevant. Great, great. And actually, Christina, can I ask you a slightly different question, but it relates to that, which is if an organization, though, or somebody wants to reach out to people with lived experience, what advice would you give those organizations? I would absolutely say that before a reach out even happens, to be sure that the work is done internally, you know, to know that the person is going to be compensated appropriately, supported appropriately, that the infrastructure of the work has been determined. Because I think one of the, you know, for me, one of the A non-desirable situation would be to go into some place or some organization where lived experience is kind of a nebulous concept and then perhaps not supported or perhaps underfunded. So really being sure when you're going to bring lived experience into the picture to be sure that it's, again, it's very thoughtful, it's meaningful, and that the structure is there to support it. You know, when I decided to do this work, I was very, very, very cautious of who I was going to do this work with. And so I encourage people who are, who are going to bring in lived experience to be that, you know, to, to have that in place. But I also encourage people who are thinking about using their lived experience to please do your research and make sure that, you know, ask questions, do your research, know your worth and, and be sure that it's the right fit for you when you're going to do this work. Fantastic. Really sage advice from both of you. Thanks a million for that. Okay. So just one final question, which is slightly, slightly different, but just to bring it sort of to, to a close is, so you're both obviously two young individuals, but let's thinking ahead with our life's work ahead of us. Or, but if thinking now, sort of half, half in jest, but half serious as well, which is what, what would you like to be remembered for? And again, I'll start with Christine and then I'll finish with Benny. So what would you like to be remembered for? Uh, <laughs> I think it's a bit unfair, but here we go. That's Okay. Oh gosh. Oh, there's a 
If it's just one I mean, thing, then one thing, Christina. One thing, Rory. Gosh, you know, I guess if I if I have to say, I would want to be remembered for the way I made other people feel, for the way I treated others. So that that you know, besides my cool hair and you know my my goofiness, I would say you know <laughs> the things I've done for others and and what other people feel. That's a brilliant one. I think. Yes, it's a great one actually, and but I think and, and typifies I think so many people working on suicide prevention that really. That what draws so many of us into the field we like is is ho- trying to hopefully make other people feel better or Absolutely. safer or more secure or more connected. But for those yep. who can't see and those of you on this podcast can't see Christina's hair, it is super duper cool. Even though <laughs> saying super duper, so my kid, my kids would kill will, will not be happy with that. Super duper is not a very cool thing to say. But your hair, your hair looks super, Christina. Benny, same question for you. Again, so reflecting on sort of a legacy, and a legacy sounds so grand, but there's one thing you would like to be remembered for. Uh, I want to be that compassionate person, both for others and myself as well, when I'm doing the work in improving the public mental health outcome as well as preventing suicide. That's all I want to be remembered. Yeah, that's that's great, and obviously a lot of overlap with Christina's. But but again, you've highlighted another really important point, which I don't think we've really touched on today. But that importance of self compassion, yes. that importance of recognizing that we're all human, and it's been less been less harsh and self critical is so so important. So thanks for raising that as well. Another a great way to end, Benny. So just before I do draw to a complete close, Benny, Christina. Anything that you'd hope to talk about or touch on or any final observations or thoughts before we, we bring it to an end? Rory, I just, again, you know, thank you guys so much for, for doing this podcast and for having me. But I guess I just want to end with, you know, just one small thing that I, I always share with folks. And, you know, whether it's lived experience or just talking about suicide prevention in general is, you know, basically don't be afraid to reach out or don't be afraid to reach in. And I always tell people, you know, you don't always have to have the right words. One thing I say all the time is it doesn't have to be eloquent, but it has to be empathetic. So, again, just that message of of, of not being afraid to reach out, reach in and, uh, you know, be there for other people. So just keeping in mind that empathy is empathy is revolutionary, as we say, and maintaining that empathy all throughout lived experience and all the work that we do together. Oh, thanks, Christina. And of course, not only is that such true words, but fits the reach in, reach out, fits so perfectly with the podcast yeah, title. Yep. Yep. When I when I saw that, I was like, I say that all the time. This was meant to be. <laughs> <laughs> and Benny, any last thoughts from you then? Yeah, uh, for me, after years of doing the community works on suicide prevention, I always believe that we may run out of resources. We may not have so much support systems available but we always have each other and that's the most important thing we always have each other we still have each other and that's how we can build how we can build our future together for life that is worth living absolutely no again no thanks benny and and i think the broader context about having each other is obviously sadly too many people who are suicidal don't feel that sense of connection but what we're all trying to do in the field of suicide prevention is to promote that connectedness, promote that mm-hmm. sense of togetherness. And as a community working in suicide prevention, again, that's one of our goals. And again, one of the strengths 
of the suicide prevention community is that sense of let's we're all in this together and through us being together we can hopefully save people's lives as well as look after ourselves so thanks for that and just final thoughts so thank you so much or not the final word to me sorry rather than thoughts but thanks for both of you you taking the time to join us on the podcast and and the incredible work that you do in suicide prevention so thanks and and have a great rest of day all the very best <laughs>